suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned, some seem to have multiple lifespans, a few were once thought to be extinct in the region, others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 186 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 29th of January 2019. This is an Australian podcast. We talk about news and politics there's normally a panel of us discussing the issues of the week, and on this occasion, it's no exception. There's a panel of us. It's the usual panel. It's uh, <laughs> myself, the Iron Fist, and with me, as always, Scott, the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. G'day, Paul. Um, how are we all tonight? They're all good. We're yeah, getting close on that 200, aren't we? We're, we're sneaking up to the 200. Mm. And, of course, Paul, the 12th man. G'day, Fist. G'day, Glove. G'day, listeners. Welcome back. Good to have you aboard. Mm. You're looking good, 12th man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, in fact... <laughs> You're looking sharp. You're looking good. You've come so far. Right. So, uh, dear listener, if this is the first time you've joined the podcast, we normally go straight into topics of the day. But on this occasion, we're just going to talk about a few things that we're up to. So... If you don't want to listen to that, uh, look at your app and see the first topic, which is about Venezuela, and and jump to that section if you like. There'll be a little time stamp saying where it is. But we're going to talk about a couple of things that are coming up. And but if you're in Melbourne, you might want to listen to this. Yeah, you might want it. So, <laughs> uh, Velvet Glove, Twelfth Man, are going to be in Melbourne this weekend. No, not this weekend. On the eighth, we fly out on the eighth of February, so we're going to be down on the ninth and tenth of February. Right. For a secular party meeting, which is called, sorry, Paul? It's called Losing Your Religion, Ex-Muslims Speak Out. Sounds very dramatic, and it should be a very good uh, session if you have any interest at all in the issue of, um, well, uh, leaving religion in general, but more specifically uh, for those people who were born into the Muslim religion and decided at some point in their lives that they no longer wanted to be a part of it. They did not. They no longer identified themselves as religious Muslims, and perhaps uh, they wanted to completely break away from that uh, identity. Um, often for very good reasons, very good intellectual and personal reasons. And we have a very interesting panel of ex-Muslims coming to speak, uh, some from overseas, most of them from Australia, from Sydney and Melbourne, I think, on the whole. Um, so it should be a very good session. So if you're still interested, there are tickets still available. If you go to the Secular Party of Australia Facebook page, you'll find details of uh, how to buy tickets. I think it's... Uh, what is it, $125 for the conference and a two- or three-course dinner plus drinks. Uh, if you only want to attend the 
event, the conference itself, I think it's fifty dollars. I think okay. uh, from memory. So well worth well worthwhile if you're in Melbourne and you're able to attend and you're interested in that issue. And the bonus is you could meet the Velvet Glove and the Twelfth Man. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Mm. Yeah. And you guys are hoping to catch up with any listeners uh, for breakfast the next day. Yeah, exactly. It's on Sunday the tenth mm-hmm. of February. So we're going to ask any Melbourne listeners that might be keen to catch up with us for breakfast to email Trevor at the Iron Fist Velvet Glove. I can't remember. There's, your, there's, there's a contact link on the contact website. Contact link, yeah. So send your details to Trevor. He will then forward them on to myself and Paul. We will email you. We'll tell you where we're staying and get your suggestions about where we meet for breakfast. That'll be good. That'll be fun. Yeah, Absolutely. It's good. it's good to catch up with the listeners. Yes, mm. we'd love to meet some of the listeners in Melbourne. Mm. Mm. Very good. That's the announcements. Um, gentlemen, I thought that uh, we should kick off uh, this episode with a short prayer. Uh, bear with me. Okay. Please, let us pray. Iron Fist, who art in Brisbane, Trevor be thy name. With Velvet Glove and Twelfth Man, podcast be thy game. Give us this day our weekly podcast to expose those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into superstition, but deliver us from bullshit. For thine is the podcast, for the politics and the ethics, for the beer and the banter. Amen. 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 Thank you, Father Anonymous. Anonymous, <laughs> we appreciated that. That was great. <laughs> Father An- Anomalous. <laughs> Father Anonymous. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, we love voicemail messages. So look on the website. There's a link there that takes you to SpeakPipe and you can leave us a message. It doesn't have to be funny. It can be just uh, encouraging or whatever, but certainly that was fun. Thank you very much. Hmm. Right. Uh, and quickly, just last week was a really good episode, I thought. That it was. was a highlight yeah. episode. Went on. It was quite long. <laughs> Mrs. Fist is still complaining about that. <laughs> she hasn't finished it yet. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And, you know, a range of um, sort of comments and feedback and um, certainly Mrs. Fist wasn't entirely happy with your thoughts, 12th man, oh, about sweetie <laughs> love. And, and, uh, I've been getting a bit of um, blowback from, from, from women in particular, haven't I? You have. Yeah. But, but one of our new listeners, Aiden, described himself as a 12th man fanboy. Oh, so, wow. So they are out there. So he could well be the first fanboy in my life. He could be the first and the only, yeah. So, good. Kind of, so you know, I, I feel like I'm the silent bloke here, you know. I never get mentioned, so oh, yeah, it's all glove. tragic, really. Yeah. Come on, somebody out there. Hmm. Some no. fan mail for glove, please. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, we've got some good comments. Uh, on the website is a good place to leave a comment. Um, even better than, I think, on the Facebook page because it's always there then and easy to find. So Bronwyn left some comments and she sort of agreed with a lot of what we had to say. Probably where she disagreed was on normal mating behaviour. A really 12th man, good grief. Why can't a woman walk down the street or just go about her daily business without being accosted by unknown men? And she goes on to make some good points. Thank you, Bronwyn and uh, the other people who contributed there on the comments. So that's a nice place to leave stuff for us. So, right, enough of that sort of uh, housekeeping stuff. Let's get on to some topics. And the first one is 
let's talk about Venezuela for a little bit because I find it fascinating. I've got a soft spot for Latin America. Did you know that? Yes, because you travelled there as a young bloke, didn't you? I did, yeah. I was 19 years old. I bought a one-way ticket to America. You could do that in those days and spent three months in North America, three months backpacking around Central America and three months in South America and loved it. Great, really good experience. And so I've got a particular soft spot and interest in South America. Me too, I have to say. Mm. um, Because you've had a lot of students that you've dealt with from Brazil. Yes, in my line of work, I I, Mm. I meet a lot of students from South America, mainly young adults, sometimes mature age adults. And Mm. on the whole, I I find them very, very warm and uh, nice people. Yeah. I also have a couple of uh, pretty close personal friends from Venezuela. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, they left out of desperation for the country. They just thought there was very little hope left uh, with its current political regime. Mm. Um, Maduro and the guy before him, who was that? Uh, Chavez. Chavez, So so would you know whether they were part of the elite or whether they were part of the poor native population? Neither. They were part of the middle class. Right. But the middle class also in Venezuela would have been feeling the, you know, obviously with inflation, uh, their middle class status would have become increasingly precarious. Mm. And they got out with what they could uh, get out with and uh, took a big hit in terms of exchanging the local currency for internationally um, usable currency, you know. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's been in the news. Most people would have seen something uh, about the hyperinflation, uh, crazy hyperinflation and food lines and people unable to get basic necessities. And what we've got is just in the uh, in the last few days, we've, we've got a president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, and there's the leader of the Congress. So it's a Congress which is controlled by the opposition, a guy called Juan Guaido. And Juan has just announced that he's declaring himself to be some sort of president. And almost immediately the United States came out and said, yep, we agree, he's the president. And Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister, Maris Payne, said that Mr Guaido, the opposition leader and president of the National Assembly, or to lead the Latin American nation until elections are held. So we've got an elected president and most Western countries, including Australia, have just said, oh, this new guy who's declared himself president, he seems like the right guy. It's a real poke in the eye for democracy. Now, you can argue that the election that was held maybe wasn't that democratic, but there certainly hasn't been an election that's, that's elected one either. So... It's well, he's claiming, I think, isn't he, that the election was uh, the results were manipulated to a dramatic degree, and so that yes. therefore he was de facto the the proper person yes. to take that role. Yes. So, so what we've got is a country in political turmoil. We've got a hostile Congress controlled by the opposition. We've got public servants who have no money, and they need to stand in food lines for handouts. This sounds like the United States of America to me. Oh, come on. Well, <laughs> everything I just said. No, seriously. Yes, but a people political in the turmoil. United States of America don't have a, you know, what is the inflation rate there now? It's a million percent. extraordinary. Yeah, but hang on. Everything I just said, political turmoil, a hostile <laughs> Congress, public servants with no money, you have to stand in food lines for handouts. Oh, look, 
I suppose what you would say is that in the Venezuelan case, there's a question over the legitimacy of the election because only 46% of the population voted. But hang on a minute. In the USA, how many many voted in the USA? 55%. Mm. (laughs) Look... And this is the equivalent of the rest of the world saying, you guys are in crisis and we recognise Nancy Pelosi as the true president and call on Donald Trump to bring an immediate election. Well, it, like, it would be Hillary Clinton, wouldn't it? No, it's no, it would have been Nancy Pelosi. Of, uh, it's the leader of the Congress. Oh, so it would be Nancy yeah. Pelosi is, is what the equivalent would be. So if the rest of the world said to the USA, you guys are in crisis, food lines, you know, all the rest of it, the only thing that's missing is the hyperinflation. So... I'm just pointing out, it's quite an extraordinary thing for the entire world to turn and say, here's a guy who should be president without any election. And um, how did Venezuela get into, the, into this position is the, is the question, isn't it? And we've talked a little bit about it. And I've got a link to a few different things. And, oh, basically, as we've discussed before, Venezuela has more oil than than any other country on the planet. Mm. It should be Saudi Arabia, if you like, of Latin America. It's an extraordinary thing. Mm. And really, with that much oil, it should be able to just get itself out of trouble of any sort, really. If you've got that, that much sort of potential income, you should be able to say, well, we're in trouble here, but... Lend us some money and we're good for it because, look, we've got all this oil. Will you just lend us some money and we'll, we'll battle our way out of this? Um, you know, we got into trouble because oil prices plummeted, but now oil prices are coming back up. Coming back up, yeah. And, you know, any reasonable banker would go, well, okay, we're going to make you, you know, not going to give you as going to make you pay a higher interest because you're a bit more of a credit risk, but you clearly have a capacity to pay. And that's what should happen in this circumstance. The problem is America just imposed all of these sanctions on them, which basically cut them off from the financial world. Mm. They can't deal with the world financially. So there's all these sanctions that Obama started and Trump... um, sort of accelerated and made even worse. Mm. So uh, so what you've got is uh, it was described by a guy, I was reading an article, It was it's, it's like a medieval siege. So in olden days, you know, surround the town and just don't let them get any food and let nothing get in or get out. And financially, that's what's happened to Venezuela. But only you financially, know? not physically. Y- yes, but, but, but if you can't... Imp- you can't export anything and you can't import anything, then financially you're marooned and you're stuck. So, But is it the case that they can't export oil? I think they're well, still well, selling well, well, to whoever well, is... They're, they're exporting to China yeah. and places like that that are prepared to deal with anyone. Yeah. And that is the problem, that China has to buy its oil from Venezuela and Iran, you know, where they're giving the finger to the US. Mm. But... <clears throat> Even though China uses a tremendous amount of oil, it's got to be cheaper for them to get the Iranian oil than it is from Venezuela. Mm. And Venezuela, my understanding is that it's uh, quite expensive to produce oil there. Is it? Yeah. So I could like, but it is, it, it's, it's a sort of oil where 
once the once the price drops, it becomes uneconomic to extract some of this oil. Mm. So, and, and Colombia is in the same boat. It doesn't have as much, but it, its cost of producing oil is very similar. So there's some charts that you'll see where uh, it shows that the oil supply out of Venezuela drops, uh, the oil production drops as the price drops. Mm. But in recent times, it's just plummeted off the bottom of the graph. Whereas in a country like Colombia, their production dropped, but then as the uh, prices have increased, their their production has has levelled out as well. So the problem for the Venezuela is um, is is the sanctions that have been imposed by the United States have really caused them problems in terms of production as well. So yeah, they can't my understanding is mm. they can't get credit to buy any of the equipment that would maintain the oil rigs and that sort of stuff. So the yes. rigs aren't producing the oil in the, in the same volume that it, it's possibly for them to produce at. Mm. And they would normally enter into some joint venture <coughs> arrangements with some groups and mm. say come on you guys put up some rigs we'll extract some oil we'll pay you out of the proceeds but the um, the sanctions effectively stop that sort of thing happening as well. So, um, and just on Monday, the the United States on Monday, um, uh, I'll just quote this bit here: the Trump administration intensified its interference in politically fractured Venezuela by announcing the seizure of billions of dollars in assets connected to this nation's state-owned oil company. So under the sanctions, U.S. companies can continue to purchase Venezuelan oil, but the payments must be held in an account that cannot be accessed by the Maduro regime. If the, pe- quote, if the people in Venezuela want to continue to sell us oil, as long as that money goes into a blocked accounts, we'll continue to take it. Mm. Like This is the sort of screws that are being put on them. And the USA has a real bad history of interference in Latin American countries and... This was another example where, okay, they've got problems with corruption and mismanagement and all sorts of things, but with a sort of a leftist socialist government, the USA just put the screws on them and one of their specialties is just to fuck up countries and and by placing these sort of financial embargoes on them, they've just done a good job on Venezuela and that's, you know, a, a, a large Part of the problem, like, like with the oil prices increasing, if their oil production increased, they'd be fine. There's billions of dollars there, but they can't do it because of of the actions of the United of yeah. the United States. So, it's so a really you, sad situation. You have a, an objection to the United States uh, exerting that sort of pressure mm. on any country. It's a type of regime change that that they just engage yeah. in all the time. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, would you just? let any kind of despotic regime trade its way into prosperity uh, like China has, in, a, in effect. I mean, it's a despotic regime over there too. They've managed it successfully. Their economy has boomed in recent decades and, mm. um, and they're now, you know, in the position where they can reach out, claim what were formerly considered international seas as Chinese territory now. Mm. And you you don't have a problem with that? Uh, I don't have a problem with... I, I don't think the USA is the world's policeman and I don't see it's their role to um, place embargoes on countries and cause regime change. So, no. Yeah, but see, I 
I'm not sure how I feel about this. I think Madeira has got to go, mm. but I would prefer it if the Venezuelan people were able to vote and that sort of stuff and they removed him when the next election comes around. But what Trevor said <clears throat> is that the US has very effectively applied the screws. So Venezuela has got no hope of trading its way out of its current position. You know, you can sell oil, but you can't get any money for it. So that's a shocking thing for the Yanks to do. Yeah. Look, I, my position, and, and this is a, is a vague position, I suppose, I think that there is such a thing as, an, a, as a contest of ideal, ideology in the world mm. and that if the United States and other countries like Australia are just willing to, you know, let despotic regimes, political regimes prosper to the point where they, they're lo- they're, their own people simply cannot displace them, then we're supporting uh, the emergence and the entrenchment of these despotic regimes. You know, I think back to the 1930s when uh, apparently uh, Australia was selling uh, pig iron. Well, mm. Remember pig iron Bob? Ben Menzies yeah. got the nickname yeah, pig, pig iron, iron Bob. Bob because he was selling pig iron to the Japanese. That's yeah. right. And they were using it to build battleships, battleships to come back at us, yeah. And guns. And, you know, I think there is there is a little bit of legitimacy in, in the claim that any country has a right to not trade with political regimes that they find objectionable. There you go. That's my yeah, but I mean, well. I, I don't think that the political regime in Venezuela is as evil as the Yanks make out. I mean, it is a leftish government. There is no doubt about that. It is a socialist government. It is corrupt, absolutely, you know. Look at the effect on the local people. Absolutely. The local people have suffered terribly under Chavez initially and then Madero. I mean, but, it but is... imposing those sanctions and preventing has, imports... Has made it even harder it, on them. Just, is done knowing it's going to create a disaster well, for the poor people. Well, I think that's the point, is that it will bring the regime to the point of collapse, which is perhaps in the long run the better thing for, for the people. See, this is Cuba all over again. I mean, at the end of the day, Cuba was shut out of the world by the Americans. And who were they going to trade with then? Well, they had to deal with the Soviet, the Soviet Union. Union. Because of what the Americans did, like if they'd have allowed open borders and allowed communication and trade, then the, you know over time by the osmosis, people come into the fold. But when you set up a border like that, yeah. um, you get a Cuba-like situation. So the same could happen. You know, that's a setup for a Cuba situation again with Venezuela. You'll get, you know, Russia and other countries offering support and. Um, well, you've already and, got you've already got yeah. Russia and China backing Madeira. Mm. Yes, you know. But look at what happened with Eastern Europe. I mean, the Cubans would have been selling sugar to Eastern Europe as well. But now, I mean, when they got the chance to vote with their feet, the Eastern Europeans left the Soviet Union in a rush, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And I but, dare you know, say that because they were the, allowed to join the Western community. That's right. You know, and the Cubans would have as well. Would have loved I to have joined the Western community, I but they weren't allowed that's to. A given. I don't know. That's a given. If the United States had happily traded with Cuba, the regime would have become so uh, powerful and, and entrenched. Yeah, but the the regime in Cuba hasn't been replaced at all. It's it's still there. It's still it a dictatorship, that's and true. it's still survived. That's true. I think the point Trevor's making is that what did it achieve? I don't think it achieved anything. And I think that it would have been better off if the Yanks had traded with Cuba 
you know, after the Cuban yeah, Missile Crisis, yeah. after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think Kennedy should have said, "Look, as long as you keep your missiles out of there, we won't well, have a welcome problem into with the you. world community." Exactly. You well, know, and, and China. That, China, China is my go-to <clears throat> country for this argument because China is now in a position where the, the Chinese people just have basically close to zero chance of getting rid of their government. Mm-hmm. They've just got no chance. Look at what happened in Taiwan. Taiwan used to be ruled by a military dictatorship under Chiang Kai-shek after he left mainland China in, in retreat from the, you know, the communist victory in the mainland. Over time, it evolved into a more or less a liberal democracy is what they have now. You know, they have mm-hmm. regular elections. Mind you, it's, a, it's basically a two-party system like we have here. But they regularly, you know, more or less those, regularly those change governments positions. Those do change. Yeah. They, they mm-hmm. do change. And the yeah. current government in Taiwan, if they dare do it, they would declare independence. They don't dare do it because they know it would provoke uh, the Beijing government possibly into military action and they don't want to risk that for obvious reasons. So I, you know, I personally think as, so long as you don't, you know, China is now so powerful and, and the government is so entrenched, the local, the Chinese population have very little chance of getting rid of them now. So they're, they're it's, it, you know, they're in place almost forever, if you like, unless somebody within the Chinese Communist Party decides that they want to change it. And that looks increasingly unlikely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just think that there is um, some argument in uh, not uh, trading with despotic regimes to the point where they become so powerful and so rich that they can cement themselves into place. So, so, so you're saying we that shouldn't be trading with China at all? You're saying, is that the argument? That's my argument. I that c- we shouldn't have traded with China because they've now... I'm not saying we shouldn't successfully integrated into the world community and are now too powerful. Yeah, basically, what I'm saying is the the liberal democracies of the world have decided to conveniently say, well, the Chinese people don't really need liberal democracy like like our people do, so we'll just trade with them because it's good for us, it's good for our economies, and yeah. Rather than saying they, that they don't need it, maybe we've just said it's not really our business to be telling them or forcing yes, them. They've that said we that can... too, because this is part of the, the you know, the, the, the Western it, left, leftist right. paradigm is that other people's uh, livelihoods and culture is none of our business. I'm a oh. universalist, Trevor, as you know, and I think all humans everywhere on earth deserve. Uh, to be, you know, to have opportunities for not only a decent standard of living, but to be able to choose their 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 leaders, their political leaders. Just give me an example where where other countries have successfully successfully told um, recalcitrant countries what to do and have forced them to comply, and that's been a success story. Like what, you're saying that the West should have either not traded or should have done things to force China to do a, take a different path is what you're I'm, saying. I'm not saying we could have forced them, but perhaps we've facilitated the, the despotic government in China, facilitated their capacity to increase their own strength at home and abroad and we're doing ourselves no favours uh, politically in the long run. Ourselves, yeah, because but, but 
But China, with so many people, is always going to be a world power at some point. Well, they weren't for the last 200 years. So, so <laughs> yeah, we should have was... kept them locked out of the world economy to protect ourselves. I'm not saying locked out, but what I'm saying is we have effectively facilitated China's rise to world power status. Yeah, yeah. but I think, I think you're ignoring the history of that because, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, the two world's richest countries were China and India, and now we're returning to that. We are returning to them being the world's richest countries, being China and India, and the rest of us will have to follow yeah, them up. I'm pretty familiar with Chinese history, and, I, you know, I'm not saying that the Chinese people don't deserve a good living. <laughs> what I'm saying is they deserve the same as we deserve, which is freedom, uh, freedom of choice of who our political leaders are, and a good standard of living. Arguably, given the nature of the Chinese economy and where it was, you could say that the sort of um, political structure that they've had was the best that, in terms of turning that country around and and getting it to where it is. So, you know, under uh, communism, you're uh, saying. Y- y- arguably, yes. Some you, people you, do you, argue you that. Could, it's, it's possible to argue some that. Some people argue that. And, and you could also... I don't buy it. I've also had uh, some contact with Chinese people and, mm. you know, my impression is that there isn't a great yearning for a democracy. Mm. Like, if, you know, ask your average Chinaman, you know, what's topmost of his mind in terms of desires and and voting in an election is not, is not high up there. It, yes, but... Keep in mind, Trevor, they haven't had... um, They haven't had the experience of it. Not only the experience of it, they haven't been been told that it's something desirable. No, but you know what? The people I'm dealing with are actually living in a Western country and are observing Australia and they're seeing our elections and democracy. They know they don't have it, but they don't go, gosh, really wish we had that. Like, I don't get a strong feeling from my little... I've met the opposite. Mm, yes. I, well, I mean, it's mm. only one example, mm. but I met a Chinese woman uh, some time back, maybe mm. 12 months ago, mm. and she told me her and her husband migrated specifically because the Tiananmen Square incident mm. made them realise just how oppressive their government was and mm-hmm. how ruthless it was and how ruthlessly it would mm. crush dissent Mm. And they decided that they'd had enough and they didn't want to live under that sort of regime. And they migrated to Australia for freedom, literally for freedom. We'll, we'll never have access to an accurate poll of Chinese no, feelings on democracy. Not. Like it just, it'll never happen. Yeah, but, probably not. Um, but look, I, I think given the opportunity, they would embrace liberal democracy so, so, as well. So, okay, to sum it up, you are sympathetic to a US embargo and intervention in Venezuela um, because of the Chinese example where you think we should have done more to stop their current trajectory? What I object to, well, I mean, I'm not necessarily supportive of all historically American interventions, but, you know, if the Venezuelan people had legitimately elected Maduro, and there's a big question mark over whether his election was legitimate, then I would object to the Americans intervening. But it would appear 
from what I've heard from Venezuelan friends and from all sorts of media reports, that the election was fraudulent and that it was stolen. And in a, in a sense, you know, I think there is some legitimacy in other countries exerting a little bit of pressure. I can't agree with you. Once again, you know, the US election arguably was was, you know, taken over by Russian bots and, and question marks over the legitimacy of, of Trump's election. Yeah, but that, 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 there, was, there was that. However, that was Russia's influencing it. You still had people that had to go out and vote That's for right. it. And, and that is the difference. counting the votes. And uh, we can be reasonably confident that in America the, you know, the votes and the counting is witnessed and vetted Honestly, hmm. and, and you know, even even though you know, people say, "Well, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote; she had she got more votes." We all know that the electoral college system sort of messes with that a bit. Hmm. But I think we can r- relatively safely trust the numbers that they produce. Whereas in the Venezuelan case, we just don't know because they, I don't think they allowed international observers in uh, in their counting, and there were lots of reports of you know, stuffed ballot boxes and things like this. So I think there is a big question mark over the legitimacy of the government there. Mm -hmm. And if there is such a big question mark, I think the international community uh, may be justified in um, isolating that government, yes, because, you know, maybe we owe it to the population of Venezuela. The problem is, though, the problem is by doing what you're doing, you're going to make it a hell of a lot harder for the people down the bottom of the heap. Yep. Whereas the bastards that are in office, they don't feel the pain. No, you know, the, you know, you've got this situation. It was on t- last week tonight, which is a show that um, is funded by some British guy that lives in America. Can't think what his name is. John something or other. Anyway, John Oliver. John Oliver. Yeah, that's him. He's a comedian. He's a comedian. <laughs> yes. Um, some of the most insightful commentary on world affairs yeah, comes from him. comedians and podcasters. Yeah, absolutely. He's yeah. sometimes very good. I agree. He is very good. Anyway, he was he had a situation that he was talking that Madeira was addressing the food shortage in the country, and he cut off to watch something else. So there was you know they, they'd cut it off, and they had while he while it was being playing this pre recorded thing, he picked up a cake and started eating it. You know, <laughs> that is how out of touch he is. He's you know he hasn't lost any weight like the rest of them have. The rest of the population is a lot thinner than what they once were, but he hasn't. No, he's putting on weight. He's putting on weight. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's just he's as corrupt as all get out. He is as corrupt as no all doubt. get out, and that's the problem. Is that you know if you're going to apply the pressure as the US has done, it's going to be the little people that miss out, not Maduro. What about Marcos? You know, remember when Marcos fell? Mm. Mm-hmm. Are you saying the US shouldn't have done anything? I can't. I'm not aware of the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, there were of, people in the streets in Manila, you know, mm. calling for Marcos to step down. The same thing is now happening in Caracas. There are thousands of people taking to the streets, calling for this guy Maduro to, mm-hmm. to piss off. Mm-hmm. So it would appear it's not just the Americans exerting pressure. The local population is calling yeah, for him to step but down. I, yeah, but I, the I point is, is the Americans, through their financial embargo, have have basically... Oh accelerated and accentuated a, a bad situation and made it impossible for the government to get itself out of it. I'm not sure. I think the, the government is so inept and so corrupt that uh, the, it would have they've happened. They've confiscated anyway. the state bank's assets in America. Mm. They can't repatriate money back to Venezuela. Mm. Like It's drastic, I agree, but... So, you know. 
If, if, it's more if, drastic. It's bloody If brutal. the end result is that they get rid of that despot and, you know, there's some hope that, a, uh, that they could return to a, a genuine democracy, then maybe it's worth it in the long run. Oh, there we go. Well, I can't agree with you. I'm afraid it, it's... Okay. Uh, Speaking of China, um, China has set up, um, we spoke about it before, this sort of social credit system where mm. if you are, if you fail to pay a debt, you're given a black mark. But um, all sorts of, you know, if you do voluntary work, you sort of get credit marks. And in certain Depending provinces. Depending on who you do it for. Yes. They've set up this merit system where they're keeping track of a score. And if you have a bad score, you can't travel in the country. That's You're right. stuck in your you can't province. Can't buy a train ticket. Yes. Can't buy a plane ticket. Yes. You're stuck. So in China's, uh, well, how do you pronounce this? H e b e i province. Hebei. Hebei or something like that. I don't speak Chinese, no. but I've heard them say, and it's sort of like Hebei, yeah. something like that. It's all tonal, isn't it, with Chinese? Um, there's an app, and a bit like these dating apps where you can just switch it on and look and see if there's any available single people yeah. in your vicinity. It's like it's like Grinder for um, you know. This tells you whether there are people. Can on you the... show me how to use that latest? Right. It's a gay dating app. Paul. Oh. <laughs> okay. but there you must want be. Tin- a... You want Tinder? Is you want. Oh, Tinder. Is that what I need? That's what you okay. need. Yeah. Yeah, you I know wasn't, it was I didn't know Grinder was gay. Yeah. Yeah, it is gay. Oh, okay. You don't want that one. <laughs> Clearly, but I don't anyway, know much about these. On both of those apps, you can, you can, I believe, I've never used either of them. <laughs> Mrs. Fist is not at the door. Listening. It's okay. It's like a map and it'll show you if there's somebody in the vicinity who's a likely match for you or a single or whatever. Well, mm. this, this app in China will now tell you who in the vicinity is like on the blacklist yeah. of this social credit school. Yeah. It's really – it's. <laughs> It's sinister. It is sinister. It, it really is. is. Yeah. It really is evil, actually. And, you know, it's – I want to grab some Gen Y people that ever say shit like, oh, well, look at China. They don't have democracy. Yes. They're doing okay. Yes. And you, think, you want to sit them down and actually show them this stuff and say, this is what happens if you trust a government too much, mm. you know? Exactly. Because these people – they haven't done anything all that wrong. I mean, they didn't pay their bill or something like that. They're being blacklisted as financial deadbeats. And, mm. and that's not the half of it. The, no. It's- the China, China imprisons lawyers who defend political dissidents. They imprison their lawyers, not just the dissidents themselves. Mm. So, I mean, it's such a uh, – <sighs> I mean, it's it's sinister. It's a sinister regime. I, I just mm. can't put it any other way. Mm. And anyway. it worries me, mm. you know, for not only the Chinese people, it worries me for the wider world mm. that that China is a rising power. And, you know, that, I'm not saying they don't deserve power. What I'm saying is the way they exert their power is not entirely wholesome. On the bright side, though, they don't have a history of... Interfering in other countries in true, terms Trevor. of in terms of military, that's uh, actually not true. Why? Tibet? They invaded Tibet in 1950 or 51. Right. Uh, you know, Mao's uh, Mao's um, attitude was um, power comes out of the barrel of a gun, but, and that's exactly what they did. They invaded Tibet. The Tibetans didn't want them, 
and the Chinese claimed that Tibet was part of China's traditional uh, area of influence. The Tibetans said, no, 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 we don't want to be part of China. And the Chinese said, well, you don't have any choice. They did the same in uh, Xinjiang, the northwestern province, which ethnically was not at all Chinese. Mm-hmm. It was it was on the edges of the actual Chinese uh, geographical world. They invaded that and took it over. It was a basically Turkic language area, you know, inhabited by the people that, that are referred to as the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. That was not traditionally. All right. Other than Tibet China. and the Uyghurs, what other country have they invaded? Uh, well, they have from time to time uh, attacked Vietnam. You know, they, the Chinese oh. people spread out. Now, historically, you know, prior to the arrival of the Europeans in East Asia, China was the world power of East Asia. And all the neighbouring states were expected to act as vassal states and to pay tributes to the Chinese emperor. Given the size of the country and the power, it's certainly exhibited less interest in invading other countries than, than similar superpowers, you'd have to say. Like it hasn't been a habit of China in that sense to take military invasions of, of, na- yeah. of, of other countries. That's my point. That, that is true, yeah. yeah. So they haven't travelled around the, smart, the globe. They're doing it the smart way now is that they are, you know, the Belt and Road Project where they're building infrastructure mm. and then, you know, uh, the And they're lending the money to them. Lending and the money to which them. Which they know they can't pay back, we'll, which they'll end up then owning we'll, the assets. We'll yeah. build a port for you here. Uh, you pay us this yep. amount of money and then it'll be yours in 50 years' time. Right. Oh, you missed a payment? Okay, that's ours now. And Thank apparently you. they've yeah. done that already yeah. in Sri Lanka. Yeah. So there's that sort of thing happening, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it is worrying that they're getting that far into the Pacific and that sort of thing because you've got a situation that Australia's trying. We've, we've come too late to the party. There is no doubt about it. I mean, that horse has already bolted. I can foresee a time that there will be Chinese naval bases in the South Pacific. I can too. Mm. Sadly, I, it's, it's on the horizon. Mm. Mm. Um, closer to home, Warren Mundine. Now, he was a national president he of the Labor Party. He was a national party. president of the Labor Party. Now he's, now, now now he's, he's joined the Liberal, Liberal Party, Party and he's going to stand in which seat is it, Scott? Oh, Glen something. South around. Coast, isn't it? Yeah, it's South Coast of New South Wales. Yeah. yeah. And I saw a great line which said that, congratulations, Warren Mundine, the first rat to jump onto a sinking ship. <laughs> that was Anthony Albanese. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. Goodness me. It, 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 you know... Clearly he wants to be in Parliament, but, you know, it's all about timing for him. How do you have actually said to Morrison and that sort of stuff when Morrison came knocking on his door saying, look, Scott, you're finished, I won't run this time, I will run next time, then it might have actually made some sense. He's going to lose, which means he'll be out now for a generation. Maybe they said to him, well, if you want to run next time, you've got to run this time. So put your hand up now. Who knows? Potentially. Mm. Anyway, not a good decision. But there was a very interesting – I'm sorry to hijack this, but mm. if I win the millions tonight, I'm going to be moving to Sydney for three months to help that woman out in Tony Abbott's seat. Right. <laughs> Zali Stegel Zali or something? Stegel, yeah. yeah. Mm. You're going to rent a nice apartment at Manly or something? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good area. Mm. We'll do the podcast from good there. Good luck. Good mm. luck with the uh, draw. Mm. Right. Uh, next topic is headed to the fist was wrong. So I made a prediction last week. <laughs> 
thought, I thought Trump was going to hold. I thought Trump was going to hold out. I thought he's such a psychopath. Well, just hold out, blame the Democrats, keep blaming the Democrats, and and they would fold. But no, it turns out he's the first one to blink. So yeah, it's. Mm, I, I don't think any of us can claim that this is what was going to happen because none of us predicted this. Oh, I know. certainly didn't. <laughs> no, I thought that I thought the other Republicans would get ch- pissed off with him and they'd say, "Look, it's time for you to go." But clearly not. Um, anyway, it's it's a good outcome. It's over for the moment. So yeah, I mean, it's of, it's only the my understanding is it's only been raised for three weeks, hasn't it? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but um, anyway, conservative sort of commentator Anne Coulter. She's very famous as uh, as previously being very pro-Trump, like just rabid Trump. She wasn't happy. And she told Times columnist Frank Rooney um, that um, implementing the principles of the Communist Manifesto would be less of a betrayal by Trump than retreating on the wall, one of his central campaign promises. So she's not happy with him. Like Bit of overblown rhetoric. Yeah. It was a little bit overblown. Mm. But there's still a significant number of people who are not happy with Trump on that one. Anyway. You know what What really disturbed me was that you've got these TSI, TSA guys and that sort of thing who have to keep working because they're whatever. They're, they're in an occupation that means you have to keep working. Mm. So they haven't been getting paid for the last two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is. You know, there were some Republicans that voted against them getting a back pay. Really? Yeah. Uh. Goodness me. <laughs> really? There was only two or three of them, but they actually voted against them getting so, it back. Oh, goodness me. Goodness me. <laughs> right. Um, um, let's see here. Uh, we have previously spoken about emotional support <laughs> animals, and my favourite was Dexter the Peacock. Yeah. He was kind of the first. He was the Dexter. first. And Dexter and, wasn't a bad-looking peacock. He was a nice And there was a great bit. photo as part of that uh, podcast where it was a picture of a peacock on an airport luggage trolley, clearly in an airport terminal, and this person had turned up trying to get their peacock on the plane with them on a normal commercial flight as their support animal. And... And the answer was no, you can't. And airlines have had to come out with rules now as to what sort of support animals they will accept. And I just came across this story. You can't make this stuff up. There's a guy now, he hasn't been trying to get onto a plane, but there's a guy now who, as his support animal, has his emotional support animal, has got a four-foot-long alligator. <laughs> really? It's funny, uh, they're just having us on. Well, judging by the photo, clearly he's formed an emotional bond with the alligator. So yes, you know. the bloody alligator would take your foot off, wouldn't it? No, no, I think a four uh, foot long one might just take your finger or yeah, your toe, maybe. Yeah, as long as you hold it in the appropriate manner, yeah, yeah. and it can't grab onto you. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, nutters, there was also an article from the leader of the Church of England. Um, oh, God. Now, I, think <laughs> I had to laugh when I read this. This, this would be the guy who <laughs> officiated at the wedding of um, Harry and Megan, wasn't it? Yeah, I well, think it was the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the is right? head of the Church of England. So I think it was him who was. Uh, you know, there was. I don't recall who officiated, right. but maybe. But he is the head of the Church of England, leader of the Church of England. Anyway, he says that he prays in tongues every day. 
speaks in tongues. So this, well, but he sort of prays in tongues to himself. Yeah. So babbles away it's in tongues bizarre, to himself. So this whole speaking in tongues thing. I know. Uh, I thought it was only down. Thought that was confined to the. Do you recall the church we went to in Brisbane sometime? Yeah, Hillsong. They do, they, they, that, that was no hmm. pre Hillsong. It was pre Hillsong, wasn't it? it? Oh no, it wasn't. When we went, it was Hillsong. Yeah, but prior to it becoming part of the Hillsong network, it was a um, Pentecostal. Yeah, which is loosely the same variety of church. No, they mm. used to do it there. I don't know mm. if they still do, but I, I had heard from yeah. uh, acquaintances that. It, ha- it did occur there. Mm. So, so, so he admits to that, uh, although he says it's not usually an immensely ecstatic moment, apparently. Wow. So less than fulsome praise for it. But he does it every day. Mm. So he must get something out of it. Maybe, do you think we should try? It's like... He, 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 doesn't get an immensely, <laughs> he doesn't get an immensely ecstatic moment, so, uh, so yeah. Don't but know. why does he continue to do it? It's bizarre, isn't it? It, it, it is. It's crazy. So he he must think that there's something in it. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It's, mm. it's odd. Right. Um, Davos, D-A-V-O-S is... Davos. Davos is a sort of a meeting of rich people that happens. Is it every year yeah, or every second year? Every year it happens. They always go to Davos. It's the industrialised world getting together to pat themselves on the back about being the masters of the universe. Yeah. Now, you've also had it opened up to the Billionaires Club, so they follow them in there. It used yeah. to be a world leaders meeting. Now it's got the billionaires that check along with it too. Yeah. Mm. So a lot of rich people getting around and uh, having a chat about the world and what they think should happen. So mm. here's part of uh, – there was a panel of people and Mike Dell uh, from Dell Computers, one of the richest men in the world, was there. And here's a bit of an audio of, of what happened. There are growing calls to address these inequalities, particularly the wage inequality, with more taxes. In particular, in the United States, there's been a call by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez to tax uh, people earning over $10 million at a 70% tax rate. The current top rate in the United States is 37%. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this? <laughs> I just want to say I'm thrilled that they're asking. Wow. Um, well, look, I mean, uh, you know, my wife and I set up a foundation uh, about 20 years ago, and we would have contributed quite a bit more than a 70% tax rate on my income, on my annual income. And I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private foundation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government. All right. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm not supportive of that. Well, Keith. And, and, uh... <laughs> and, 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 and I don't think it would help the growth of the U.S. economy. Oh, that's interesting. And can you say a little bit more about why? Why you don't think it would? Well, name a country where that's worked, ever. United States. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, in the 80s. No, no, no. For... <laughs> From about the 1930s through about the 1960s, the tax rate averaged about 70%. Um, at times, it was up as high as 95%. And those were actually pretty good years for growth. So I, I don't have a strong opinion on that proposal. A lot of the devil is in the details. Um, but I think it's, uh, there's actually a lot of economics that suggests that it's not necessarily going to hurt growth. 
Oh, that was good. That was an MIT professor who was on the panel and he said, well, actually, the United States for a very long time. Great line. And they were probably saying, who let him in here? Yeah, they were indeed. Yep, yep. So, um, so that was interesting. And um, I thought that was interesting that he said, you know, I would have, our foundation, I would have contributed much more than 70% of my annual income to the foundation. And is, is that credible? Well, the amazing part of the internet is that you can now just Google how much has Mike Dell oh. given to charity and it's there. And how much has he given? Well. About 10% of his income? Yeah. No, 10% of his net worth. Yeah, 8.89%. So his total net worth is $22.7 billion and the amount donated is $2 billion. So, so under, not 70% of his income. No, no exactly. Idea. So bullshit, Mike Dell. Yeah. Complete bullshit. So mm. um, this is one of the interesting things, is it? You can just sort of follow up on these things. So in terms of, you know, he's number five on a list of, yeah, how does that list work? Uh, Very good. Yeah, 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 on the amount donated in billions. So top is Warren Buffett, $46 billion, which was 55% of his net wealth. And Bill Gates, $41 billion, which is 45% of his. Then it drops dramatically. The next highest is Michael Bloomberg on 12%, Phil Knight and family on 10 And Michael Dell is in fifth place on 8.89. So in terms of, you know, multi-billionaires, he's, he ranks fifth. But it's still only 8.89% of his total income. What about people outside the United States? Is there any information available? Uh, well, some of these people seem to be because in the, there's a bunch of Asian names here which could be outside the US. I don't know. Yeah, he, Xinjiang, sounds yeah, like he's Chinese. Positions 6 through to 10 are then names that are very hard for me to pronounce, so they could well be foreigners outside the United mm. States, yeah. So. You'd expect information to be available on European uh, people yeah. doing the similar thing. Um, but in terms of billions, top 10 according to this chart, which is in the show notes, dear listener, all the stuff we talk about, there's show notes for it, you can look it up. Um, very interesting. So apparently the average person in the world, um, based on, well, maybe this is US again, not sure, 2.23% of lifetime earnings go to charity. So... Um, so, yeah, there we go. Nowhere near the... 2.23% of... Is the average of what people give to oh, charity. Really? Yeah. So that's across but, the board. A lot of that would be church tithings and stuff, I reckon. In the United States. Yeah. 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 So I'm not Probably sure where not that Australia. statistic came from. <laughs> this one came from, based on an average salary of £28,000, an adult would make X amount and donates X amount, which is 2.23. So maybe that was a UK figure. Not sure where that came from. So um, the other thing we had was on last week, he was talking about um, the Ramsey yeah. Foundation and why isn't Paul Ramsey a household name because of the money that he's given away. And I said, you know, one of the problems is the Ramsey Foundation has been taken over by Tony Abbott and John Howard and all these right-wing nutters. The other thing I forgot to mention, how did – Ramsey make his money? Private health insurance. Exactly. From a business that should never have made a million, you know, a millionaire. Yeah. So Mil- milking the public teat. Exactly. So all of his private hospitals and private health 
you know, money that he was accessing was mm. stuff that should never have happened in the first place. Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's. Uh, I was a little bit sympathetic to Was, but then the more you read about private health and that sort of stuff, you know, a surgeon shouldn't be worth multiple millions of dollars a year. I think he or she should max out at two million bucks a year, you know. But to be ending yep. up to end up having cardiac surgeons earning five million dollars a year, I think that's a little bit excessive. Mm. Another chart I've got <clears> a list, uh, a link to here, just in terms of um, the world's top hundred economies, uh, looking at countries and corporations. So if you were comparing, yeah, that was really interesting. Uh, wasn't yeah, it? the revenue of um, of countries and corporations, sort of their gross. Um, revenue of companies, oh, 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 yeah, gross sort of corporate corporate turnover, mm. yeah, and of course, number one, United States, number two, China, number three, Germany, Japan, France, United Kingdom, Italy, Brazil, Canada, and then Walmart, which is bigger <laughs> than Spain, Australia, and the Netherlands. Then you've got State Grid, China National Petroleum, and Sinopec Group which is bigger than South Korea, then Royal Dutch Shell, then you've got Mexico and Sweden, and then a bunch of Exxon, Volkswagen, Toyota, and then India, then Apple, <laughs> Belgium, BP, <laughs> Switzerland, Norway, Russia. These companies are huge. It just goes to show we've got to grab these companies by the balls and get some control over them because they're massive um, so anyway, there's a list there of the well, top the 100. Top 100 economies, 69 of them are corporations. Yes. It's amazing. It's And we're allowing them to just roam all over the world doing whatever they want. Uh, they're so big now. They're so spread out and they can just shift themselves, shape shift like something out of a um, Terminator movie and and – escape the clutches of any country that tries to grab hold of them for a minute. So, Well, you know, I don't think that's as bad as it's made out. I mean, like, you know, I just think you've just got to tax them on their gross income, that's all. Yes. You know, because that way it doesn't matter what bullshit they pull with their profits and that sort of stuff, you're going to tax them on the sales they make in the country. Mm. You know. I was going to play another clip from that Davos um, uh, meeting and, excuse me, in it, this guy said, you know, I've, I've been going to all these meetings here at Davos. He was from some academic of some sort. And, you know, you're all talking about your foundations and about climate change and about this and about that and how to improve the world. But, you know, there's only been one session here in one small little back room where they actually talked about taxes. Like, that's where it's at. That's mm. the game is tax and he said, I feel like I'm at a firefighters convention where nobody's allowed to talk about water. <laughs> it was a really good line. So, it is a good line. Yeah. So um, uh, I might play that at the end. If, if there's a strange segment tacked on the end of this um, podcast, that's what it'll be about. So, um, Right. Scott, last week you were struggling with your identity when I, <laughs> when I mentioned that we were uh, privileged up, all right. uh, cisgender males of privilege and, uh, <laughs> and you said, well, I, I'm, I'm a gay man. Mm. But, in fact, cisgender is – you are cisgender as well. I am cisgender, yes, but yes. I was actually making the point that you yes. said you were cis-straight and I said, no, actually, I'm not straight. Right. So, yeah. Okay. 
So um, when we talk about cisgender, we are saying if you identify with the gender you were assigned with at birth. So all three of us, when we were born, they looked at us and said, you're a male, and we continue to identify as a male. So we are cisgender rather than transgender. Transgender, exactly. Yeah. And um, deep throat, I'm working very hard not to say cis and say cis instead. It's that annoys him when I say cisgender. It does, yeah. Um, Another word we need to get across in a similar vein is a digisexual. Are you one of those, Scott? Um, No, I don't believe so. Right. Uh, (laughs) People who love robots are digisexuals. Apparently a phenomenon. So there are people really? who, yes, people who are actually um, loving robots and having like digi sex. Like Bender their, in uh, Futurama. I don't know. I haven't watched it. You've never watched Futurama? No. Oh, it used to be no. really good in right. its uh, early, yep. early days. Yep. So, um, so, yeah, a bit of a kinky sort of uh, acquired taste possibly. Digi-sexual, but there you are. They're out there. So It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, right. Um, beer report, Scott? Okay. This week we had a little bit of a leftover from Woz. Yep. We had um, our first beer was a Newstead India Pale Ale. Thanks, Woz. Thank you very much, Woz. Thanks, Woz. And our second beer was the Little Creatures Pale Ale from David. Hmm. Thanks, so David. thank you very much to the beer sponsors. And from the top, we had Was, then Landon Hardbottom, then Bronwyn, and then David. And also um, your mate. What's his name? Wayno. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much to our beer sponsors. Mm. Can I put in a request? Can we get some um, expensive French champagne sponsors? <laughs> <laughs> well, the request is out there. See the how request it goes. is out there. I don't think it's going to get answered. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, we mentioned about um, craft beer and how a lot of what seems like craft beer is actually owned by big, big brewing companies, big brewing companies mm. and you need to sort of look behind. So there was a, a list put out, the hottest 100 Aussie craft beers of 2018, one through to 100, and we've decided we're going to work our way through it. Mm. So, uh, um, so when this beer sponsorship runs out, which yeah. is going to be at the end of the month or thereabouts, we'll yeah. uh, start buying our own beer again. And, yeah. um, and, you know. and we're going to work on that list. So there's a link there, the um, hottest 100. Bolter XBA apparently was the number one. Is this part of the boys be ambitious sort of ethic that you've been promoting? You know, boys they, used to, yeah, they used to say back in the day, you know, boys be ambitious. To encourage boys to be men, you know, real men, like the Gillette type of thing. I don't know. I'm just enjoying the beer, actually. Okay. Yeah, nothing too much in it. (laughs) Right. Uh, Last week we spoke about Australia Day and Aboriginal issues and I thought that would probably be the end of it, but... um, It wasn't. No, it's not going to be. So there's been a few things have happened in the media that we need to talk about and it's become a real Australian obsession, this whole Mm. Australia Day and then our the relationship between white Australia and Aboriginal Australia. So we're going to have a bit of a chat about that. And um, uh, did you guys get a chance to listen to what happened on Studio 10 between Yumi Steins and Kerri-Ann Kennelly? 
I didn't listen to it. I read about it, though. Okay. Let me – I've got a bit of a clip here, and it's important that we talk about this one and understand what exactly was said. So let me play a little bit of that for you. What about the 5,000 people who – Actually, I'll just stop uh, before I play it, is – they were talking about uh, the demonstrators who were out um, compl- uh, protesting Australia Day. So um, probably worked that out from this anyway. I should have not said anything. Here we go. What about the 5,000 people who um, uh, went through the streets making their point known? Has any single one of those 5,000 people waving the flags saying how inappropriate the day is, has any one of them been out to the outback where children, babies, five-year-olds are being raped, their mothers are being raped, their sisters are being raped, they get no education what have you done? I'm sure it, that is not even faintly true, Kerry, and you're sounding quite racist right now. Oh, I'm offended oh, by oh, that, yeah. Yumi. Well, keep going then, because every time you open your mouth, you're sounding racist. I am oh. seriously offended by that, Yumi. Okay. Look, I think... I seriously think this... offended. To, to tell me... Okay, my question was, how many of those people have gone out? I bet a lot of them have. Uh, have uh, well, I'd like to know. Do you know? Do you have any proof? And they're walking through the streets. And, and the, the any implication is, Kerry Ann, that women are being raped here in big cities. Yeah, but I'm talking about and the children are being raped here in big as, cities. As what Joe just said, what Joe just said was uh, the, uh, the report that came out when these people need desperately help. It is most of the Aboriginal elder women who are just desperate for help and they're not getting it. Where are these people on one day of the year want to make... You'd be better off going actually doing something positive. Look, I think this is a topic that really... um, It it, it really fires people up and I think mostly everyone has their hearts in the right place and everyone wants to do the right thing. So let's just take it back a notch. Everything's going to be cool. Just because I have Um, a point of view, Yumi doesn't mean I'm racist. Yeah, you're, you're actually connecting rape, uh, child abuse. No, to I'm asking you're drawing rape. a straight line. If any one of these people who feel so strongly about this have ever done yeah, and anything you're also, in By that the, statement, you're also implying that those 5,000 protesters, none of whom you know personally, are all lazy and idle and indolent. I did on not this. say yes, that. Yes, because you're, so you're, asking me, yeah, you're asking don't, me if any of them have ever done anything, as though it's clear that they line. haven't. No, don't draw a line that isn't there. That's the line. I see it quite clearly. Well, get new glasses. Oh, come on. 12th man, you're looking frustrated. Look, Yumi Steins uh, has a bit of form in this regard. I I mean, she's, I, I don't know if I should say typical, but I've seen her on television and she's definitely in there with the social justice warrior crowd, you know, pushing the um, social justice agenda on a number of levels. I think uh, I don't agree with either of them completely, I have to say. I think Kerry ann Kennelly is drawing a bit of a long bow, saying that there should be a direct connection between protesting the date and domestic violence and rape in uh, Indigenous communities. You know, I think what she was trying to say was that those people that are out protesting, how many of them have been out back, out the back of Burke, to try and do something about it? And I think the answer is probably none of them. Yeah, but you can protest a political issue and not be obliged to travel the length and breadth of the country. I think she might have been 
wanting to say but couldn't was this is just virtue signaling yeah. over a, of a of an issue that is in minor importance compared yeah. to the big issue of the conditions of what people are living in. But she wasn't able to I agree. To sort of but, get the word. But to then bring way. out the R word. I mean, it's yeah. so so standard form, isn't it? That yes. was really utterly wrong. How she wrong. said she's sounding racist. Yeah. I, I mean, didn't think what she did she was say that was racist? All. She didn't say anything. Uh, she didn't make any reference to race whatsoever. Oh, but she was being racist because she was calling out the black men that were doing the rape. Not all the protesters in the streets were Indigenous people. No, they were. A lot they, of them they, are, are white people, you know. Mm. Yeah, they, they weren't Indigenous people that were out on the streets. They were whites that were out on the streets. I think what she was doing was she was saying, you know, the longbow that the, what's her name, was drawing. Carrie Ann Kennelly. No, the other one. The, oh, Yumi Steins. Yumi Steins. Yeah. The longbow she was drawing was she was saying that because you're pointing out the rape and that sort of stuff, you're being racist because the people that are yeah. doing the rape are black. You know, Yumi Steins was in the, one of those programs aired by SBS on sexism, on, you know, toxic masculinity. Did you see it? No. Yeah, well, she was in, I'm, I'm almost certain, I'm like 90% certain she was, she was in that program that, that was aired a few months ago mm-hmm. on toxic masculinity. And, you know, she was one of these women who would, you know, if if a bloke, you know, made a, a comment about a woman's appearance, she would sort of roll her eyes and go, oh, toxic masculinity, you know. I mean, she's a, she, she's a social justice warrior with form. So I'm not altogether surprised that she came out with, you know, the accusation of racism because that's the strategy, isn't it? Don't have an argument. Mm. Just call someone a racist or a sexist or, or a bigot. Mm. And you don't need an argument. Mm. That's that's how it works, isn't it? Mm. Yep. Anyway, that was must have been yesterday, or and they're back on today. Uh, Yumi Steins didn't show up, but um, your friend um, Jacinta Nepijimpa Price yeah. was on. Oh, good. And uh, with Kerry and Kennelly. Um, I wish she was my friend. I'd like right. to meet Jacinta. Mm. You know, she's running for the Liberal Party, isn't she? Yeah. I think. Yep. So she's. Uh, by no means a, a left-wing no, in, she's in not, politics. No, she's not. She's quite right. Which is fine way. with yeah. me. I don't. I don't care. Yep. You know, I, what I care about is people's ideas and yep. and their political philosophy and how they how they think their ideas are going to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, but then they had another person on the panel. You know, via Skype or satellite or whatever, and she was a lady who had been. Um, uh, former sort of Greens candidate and is, a, is an activist on Aboriginal matters, and they said to her, "Well, you know what? What should we be doing?" And this woman was just fixated with a treaty and with recognition of of the errors of the past from two hundred thirty years ago, and just wouldn't say anything about concrete things to do now to help. The people that Carrie and Kennelly was talking about, and it became quite exasperating listening to it. That's so. what Jacinta Price um, mm-hmm. is on about, isn't she? She's saying mm-hmm. enough about the uh, the symbolic gestures. What what they need is um, culture change, and what they need is people actually changing things in the day to day lives of uh, mm-hmm. people in Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Indigenous people who are well educated and live in the big cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't have these issues on the whole. But mm. uh, people in the remote communities have a lot of problems. Yeah. 
And there's quite a difference in life experience between the the people who are the activists and the spokespeople for the for their community. Like their life experiences are very different, and you wonder, you know, especially when you listen to this woman going on about the way to fix the problem is the is the healing of of past injustices uh, rather than concrete things to do with living conditions. I, I had a quick look mm. at the Greens Party mm. Facebook page on the weekend and mm. it was it was all the same thing. Mm. You know, Treaty Now, Survival Day, nothing, absolutely nothing about concrete measures to address the issues in those Indigenous mm. communities. Got another clip for you. This one is from Q&A saying, I, I don't watch that one anymore either. I just come across clips on my Facebook feed because it's just too frustrating to listen to that Have was you, an old clip, wasn't it? Uh, Sharina Clant. Yeah, it wasn't a recent one. It wasn't I, a recent one? No, I remember uh, seeing one. that. It's some time back. Okay, yeah. I'll play a bit of this one. So. Can you stop? I'm really tired of non-Indigenous peoples making commentaries about Indigenous Australia because we've spent two, yourself included, we have spent 230 years of not being included in this constitution. We share sovereignty with the Crown. The Queen still owns some of our traditional lands. We're still begging to protect sacred sites that are over 80,000 years old from mining companies, from gas companies. We want to be the author of our own destinies. We want to be the voice because we are tired of non-Indigenous Australia thinking they know what is good for us and thinking that they can be the voice for Aboriginal Australia. So they should all learn to keep their mouth shut and start engaging Aboriginal Australia into the conversation. Okay. I don't think telling people to shut up is a good tactic. No, it's not. And that's the um, actress from Wentworth, isn't it? Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah, and you know, <clears throat> when she was pointing out that you know she's still trying to get justice for the from mining companies and gas companies and that sort of stuff, I bet you that the whole sacred site thing would disappear in an instant if all the royalties were paid to them rather than the state government. Don't know. I mean, I I, I accept that people would have a genuine desire to protect a site and wouldn't want it mined and say we don't want the money. Leave the side alone. I think I you're, think you're saying they would sell out. I think they would sell out. Yeah, I don't know about that. No, I, th- I think protection of um, you know culturally significant uh, sites is is absolutely legitimate. Yeah. I, I, um, however, telling people to shut up is never going to go down well. And mm. I mean, you know, people are entitled to an opinion. Yeah. And doesn't matter what colour skin they are or where their ancestors come from. Yeah. I mean, people are entitled to, to an opinion on anything yeah. and telling them to shut up is just a, an ignorant... Very childish thing to do, oh, isn't it's, it? it's ridiculous. And I was surprised that the pe- other people on the panel put up with it. Mm. Do you guys like a uh, recent movie, Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper? Haven't yeah. Star, haven't the Star is Born. The Star is Born, it was very good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, yeah. Mm. I'd like to see it, but I haven't uh, found time. Mm. But me and the better half were talking about it this afternoon. Apparently there was um, a blow-up that she was preparently acting all entitled at an awards ceremony and she got very pissed off that she got missed out. Mm. 
Anyway, apparently yeah. she deserved to get missed out. So. Mm, I don't <laughs> Black she, Panther won I think she either. put on a great performance. Very good movie. It was a very good movie. She was an excellent actress in it. There's yeah. no doubt about that. There's yeah. a lovely scene. The, the highlight of the movie is where he's on stage. He's the grizzly, old, mm. um, experienced rocker, and he's found her and he calls her up on stage to join him in a song. And she's mm. nervous about it, but she gets out there and belts out this great tune and it's a really – it's the moment of the film, isn't it? It is, yeah. So it's downhill from there on with that film, actually. But <laughs> I didn't think it was downhill from there. But, but, you know, it was. But, it, it did end up that the guy committed suicide. Blah 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 blah. Anyway, at a uh, a recent Lady Gaga concert in I think Las Vegas or Los Angeles, can't remember which one. Couldn't tell you. Bradley Cooper was in the crowd, so she like called him up to sing on the stage. So it's a kind of a really interesting reversal of the scene that happened in the movie mm. and called him up on stage to sing the song that they sang in the movie. And uh, there was a little bit of trouble with him with getting an earpiece so he could actually hear the music. So I've got a little bit of a clip for you here. I just want you to listen to this carefully, okay, and tell me what you think. Hang on. I can't hear anything. Stop screaming, shut the fuck up. I want to listen to this. <laughs> I just don't get it. You've paid money to hear something good and you're going to hear a little bonus thing mm. and you have to woo-woo through the whole thing. Mm. I would just be throttling everybody beside me and mm. saying, shut up. You See, know, that's why I don't I, go to live concerts anymore because I'm too old. It's part of the reason I don't pay, you know, $150 or whatever they charge to go to a live performance. I oftentimes would prefer to buy a good quality CD, put it on my nice CD player at home. And not have somebody screaming. And not have you. anybody interfering, getting between me and the music, yeah. You know what I'm going to do? If, if I, I'm the same as you. I don't go to live music. But if I did, I would take Sharina Clanton with me. Can you stop? I'm really tired. So they should all learn to keep their mouth shut. I'd just bring her along with me. Mm. Let's sort them out. <laughs> mm. uh, right, uh, what do we else we got here on the list? How long have we been going? Oh, we've been going a while. Um, do you know what? I reckon that's probably enough. What, what better way to end? <laughs> end on a song. Yeah. I'm not sure what we're doing next week because I'm going to be in Sydney um, and – it's going to be might be a bit difficult to do it by Skype or whatever. And I had pre-recorded sort of a highlights clip. It might be a highlights clip next week, dear listener. Not sure what we'll be doing. So whatever it is, there'll be something, and we may be speaking to you 
um, more realistically in two weeks' time. But anyway, uh, that's all for the moment and bye for now. Thanks very much for tuning in. Bye for now. Bye, everyone. Oh, and don't forget, if you can kind of meet up with the boys yes. in Melbourne, yes. get, in touch. A, get in contact with us. Send us a message, get in touch. Okay, yeah. bye. Thanks very much. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event. You can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation, so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.